For your awards consideration, Max presents the HBO original Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. This award-winning documentary travels through time and space to reveal the enduring influence of Nikki Giovanni, one of America's greatest living artists and social commentators. Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project, reckons with the inevitable passing of time through a collision of memories, moments in American history, live readings, and visually innovative treatments of Giovanni's poetry. Don't miss what the New York Times is calling insightful and entertaining. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. I write about filmmaking craft for IndieWire. My guest today is Errol Morris, whose latest documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel, is one of his best, an intriguing, entertaining, and ultimately quite moving portrait of author and former spy David Cornwell, who you probably know better under his pen name, John Le Carre. Errol and I talked about what it was like to profile someone for whom secrets had been so central, and about how Morris found a visual language that would express the dichotomies and complexities that define his subject. Here's our conversation. So when I saw Pigeon Tunnel, you know, I knew I was going to love this movie from the first few minutes, just from the visual style you created, where you have the sort of refracted images of Cornwell, where you're using mirrors and frames within frames and kind of splintering his image up a lot. And I was curious where that idea originated from to, you know, approach him in that way. To be completely honest, well, I don't want to be held to being completely honest, but in an attempt to be somewhat honest, I would say that it mirrors the actual nature of the underlying memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel itself, which is fractured, fragmentary, uh, spliced together, uh, higgledy-piggledy. So I do believe that the visual form mirrors, no pun intended, of course, when people say no pun intended, clearly the pun was intended. So pun intended, it mirrors the structure of the underlying work itself. And so did you see this as an adaptation of the book, The Pigeon Tunnel, or is it something else? I looked at it as an adaptation because it's clearly taken from The Pigeon Tunnel, the memoir, Originally, it was supposed to be a series. It's going to be a five-part series. I had written drama to be interspersed with the interview. And at some point, it was decided it was not going to be a five-part series. It was going to be a single movie. And that's what happened. But there's enough material in the memoir for a lot of movies, certainly more than one. So was that decision to make it not a series, did that happen early on? Was that before you interviewed him? Was it after the fact? Long after I interviewed him. So what was the reasoning behind, I mean, because I feel like you're right, you probably could have easily, there's so much, his life is so rich and his work is so rich that you could have easily done a a series. So what were the factors that went into that decision? I don't really know. And I'm being, I'm being ingenuous. Maybe I'm not being honest, but I'm being something. I don't know. I really don't. But I was told at a certain point there was less interest in continuing on as a series and Apple wanted a single film, which is what we, in the end, provided. It's 
strange to know what would have happened, the counterfactual, if you had done it this way rather than that way. I do know that there were all these themes running through the book that really interested me. They still interest me. There's a similarity between, maybe it's a superficial similarity, I think it's more than that, between uh, these three writers, uh, Jean Le Carré, Graeme Greene, and Joseph Conrad. And they were writers who really traveled the entire globe. They wrote different parts of the world about ongoing history. And it's so much part and parcel of how we see their work, whether it's Le Carre or Green or Conrad. And that part of it really, really interested me, this odd mixture of history, novel writing, story writing, storytelling, um, his own biography. It's a fun project for me. I mean, it really, it really interested me. I really love talking to him. Perhaps the most articulate person I have ever interviewed. He's amazing. I mean, his gift for language. It's hard for me, I have to say, not to hear him talk, to hear him talk and not, you know, to see the novels coming to life. Um, it's a kind of magical experience. So I'm deeply well, grateful I got a chance to do this. Yeah, no, it, well, he's a fascinating guy. And that whole element of his sort of intersection with history. I mean, one of the things I really loved about the movie was just hearing his perspective on the history he lived through and in like post-war Germany and things like that. There were so Absolutely. many. Yes. And the sort of shocking revelation to me, call me an idiot, call me ill-informed, but I didn't know this prior to really reading The Pigeon Tunnel and talking to him. The German government in the 1960s was filled with Nazis. And the question becomes, well, didn't we fight a war about this sort of thing? It really did and still does fascinate me that Hans Globke, who originated the Nuremberg Laws, credited by many with being square one of the Holocaust, how does this guy become a major figure in the German Republic? How does that happen? And David has all these lines about enforced forgetting I found it really, really powerful, perverse, ironic, interesting, insightful. I don't know. It's a great opportunity to make a movie with real content about the world. Well, and he seems like just philosophically his interests or what make him interesting are so in line with your interests. I mean, I just feel like it, he felt like such a natural Errol Morris subject when I think about not only your films, but um, that book you wrote, I think it was called A Wilderness of Error. And just like these, all these ideas that you're always playing with in terms of, you know, what's truth? Is there objective truth? How do we see the truth? All of those kinds of things. And I'm curious, were you a big Le Carre enthusiast going into this? Or was this something that someone brought to you? How did it originate? 
I was not a big Le Carre enthusiast going into it. I had read really one novel. I actually struggle with his novels. I have a hard time finishing them. I've only really read two completely, which is Tinker Tailor and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. But The Pigeon Tunnel, which I read around the time that I was going to interview him, I just loved it. I took to that book immediately. I still would have to say it's my favorite. He's not acknowledged as a great nonfiction writer, but take my word for it, he was a great nonfiction writer, really powerful. So to prepare to interview him, how much research do you do? How many of his, do you, do you go back and read his books? Is it more, are you trying to come in kind of cold? How does that work? No, I try to research stuff. I don't prepare a list of questions. I don't do that. But I don't try to go in as a complete idiot. I, I want to be prepared. And um, I tried to read a lot of the stuff. I, as I said, I was not completely successful. But, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the novels. I'm familiar with a lot of the adaptations from the novels. Um, some of the novels, I can confess, I don't like at all. Others I... I am still taken by the spy who came in from the coal because it's, and I make a big deal out of it in the movie, but it's this perfect combination of history, biography, um, and literature. It's hard to see all these images from the Berlin Wall, the images from the movie. The movie's great. It's my favorite of all of the adaptations from uh, Le Carre. Someone said to me while I was making it, well, don't you think it was miscast with Richard Burton? I said, what? Are you kidding me? It's one of the best performances in the history of the movies. Lemus, Burton, great. Absolutely great. No, I totally agree. That movie's incredible. And you know, it's funny, in, in The Pigeon Tunnel, there's a point where uh, Lecrae or Cornwell, you know, he he's, talks about him sort of investigating you or researching you before you do the interview. Yes. I mean, did you get this set? What, what was your sense of how much he prepared to talk to you going into this? I got the sense that he was really prepared, probably better prepared than I was. What an interesting and odd duck. He was interrogating me. Probably that question, which is so strange and disarming. Who are you? I mean, how do you answer such a question? I couldn't. I tell him, look, it's not that I'm unwilling to. I just don't think I can. The question of who I am is an ongoing question. And maybe I'll never have an answer to it, but I am still kind of rooting around trying to find answers. Well, I love the way that you shoot the interviews with him. And I'm curious, like, when how you and your cinematographer, Igor, um, how do you, how, first of all, how many cameras are you using to, to cover this interview and how do you decide where they're placed? Is it just intuitive or because just, there's such a great variety of, of angles on him. It's such, it's such a nice relief from, you know, not a kind of mundane talking head sort of movie. Well, there's no algorithm for camera placement. There's supposed to be an art form, I think. 
I mean, we had four cameras. It took me a while just to fall in love with it. But once having fallen in love with it, I can't imagine falling out of love with it. Uh, when you have a number of cameras, there's always a danger that one camera is going to pick up another camera. And Igor would shoot plates. You know, he'd put the camera right in front of somebody, shoot a plate without the camera so you could remove the camera. It's a fabulous technique, which we use throughout the pigeon tunnel. I don't know, I worried too many mirrors, too many angles, too many this, too many that, but I like it. I think it's a really beautiful, it's one of the more beautiful films that I've made, and I'm rather proud of that. Yeah, I agree. And talk a little bit about the approach to the reenactments. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, great stuff in here that's obviously not, for lack of a better word, not fictional filmmaking, but you know what I mean, the stuff that's more like a traditional movie. And it's all sort of, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of like from his, Le Carre's point of view in terms of things like his, you know, his mother leaving and all of the material about his father and then the pigeon tunnel itself, which is fantastic and very haunting. Um, at, how long did it take to shoot that stuff? Where did you shoot it? What was, the, where did that fall in the process? I'm assuming after you did all the interviews. Well, we did the interviews at a, a mansion outside of London, Northwest London, Ruthen. And a lot of the scenes were shot there. The interviews were all shot there. Then there was a long period of time uh, between shooting the interview which is only four days, that was four days of production, and shooting all of the visuals, which were shot in Budapest. And I was told, look, there's always a limited amount of money in any production. If you want to shoot in London, we can give you half the amount of time that we could give you if you shoot in Hungary. Well, that's easy. Okay, we'll shoot in Hungary. And a lot of green screen, uh, a lot of computer graphics. Uh, it's interesting, the hotel where we shot in Budapest uh, doesn't look out over the Mediterranean. Hungary is a landlocked country. Um, it looks out over a parking lot. So that's all green screen. It's all process photography. Uh, no pigeons were shot. That's all again, computer graphics. And, uh, but we accomplished so much. So the, the, the stuff in Hungary is really quite beautiful. And it was a good decision. I'm really glad we went there to shoot. We shot a lot of stuff. And as I say, I had twice the number of days to shoot than I would have if I had chosen to shoot it in London. Yeah, there's so many great like, sort of haunting images. And I love the thing where you've got all of the the eggs, you know, you turn to it a couple of times, like all the eggs on the floor. And at one point they're all broken and at another point they're not, what, you know, um, was that, how did you come up with that? And how did you shoot that? I don't even know. We just had a great production designer and they brought a lot of eggs in there and we shot them. <laughs> and what was your thinking in terms of another, another thing I really liked about the movie was the way you use you use some of the filmed adaptations of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Spy Came In From The Cold, things like that to illustrate 
some of the points, not so much about those stories, but about LeCarre's own life. Um, talk a little bit about the decision to do that and what the process was of finding and deciding on those clips. Well, Spy is the most obvious example because it really came right out of uh, David Cornwell's experiences as a young spy and civil servant in Bonn in 1960, 61. So that whole novel, kind of the crucible is history. It's all happening around him. And the novel is a really strange, despairing work of art about betrayal, confusion. It doubles back on itself. Uh, it has a character who is so compromised in so many ways. Um, it's still the one work of literature that he's done that I have unreserved admiration for. I think it's really quite amazing. And to think that he wrote it in his garden with all of his children around him is kind of amazing. He was young. He was very young when he did it. Now, you said that you, you know, you don't go in with, you know, a list of questions necessarily. So when you go into the editing room, do you go into the editing room with any idea of what the shape of the movie is going to be? Or how do you, what's your starting point taking this four days of interviews? And Well, I knew that it was going to begin with the pigeon tunnel, more or less. It was going to begin with the beginning of the interview that I did um, with David it's just a spectacular beginning. Who are you beginning? Um, are you a spectral figure? Um, who are you? Um, I knew it was going to begin with the story, the parable, if you like, of the Pigeon Tunnel. And it was going to end with the story of, which is how the memoir itself ends, of Rudolf Hess's flight from Nazi Germany, 1941, commandeers a plane, flies to Scotland to ostensibly make peace with the British government. And what I loved about it, still love about it, there seems to be a trajectory. I don't know how better to describe it because it starts with a story about string pullers and dupes. It's a kind of an espionage metaphysic. People who do the bidding of others and people who do others, who have others do their bidding. And I, uh, I like how it ends up. It ends up with an essay about history, right? maybe the unknowability of history, and maybe the absurdity of history, the chaos of history. Because what do we find out about Hess's journey? Nothing. What do we even find out about Hess's pants, which are found in the Holy of Holies, the, the C's office in MI6? You know, I find it, like all great parables, if I think of a Kafka parable, for example, you asked me to explain the hunger artist or before the law. Uh, I don't think I have any kind of definitive explanation. 
They're parables that draw us in to some kind of peculiar universe where we're asked to think about stuff. We're brought into a world of, of uncertainty and confusion. And David has a great gift for that. I think maybe it's his greatest gift. That, and, it, and it is so well demonstrated in this memoir. What does it all mean? Well, maybe it means nothing. Yeah, well, it's funny. I've been you know, watching your movies going back to when I saw Thin Blue Line when I was in high school. And I feel like you know, watching your films is a very strange experience because on the one hand, I feel like you are always probing at these questions and yet the questions become murkier with every movie and with every year. And as I get older and the movies, you make more movies. I mean, I'm curious from your point of view, making these movies, do you feel like you're coming up with any kind of clear understanding of the human condition or what, what any of this stuff means or how the world works or, or is the answer that you can't know? I'm coming somewhere closer to that idea of not being able to know. But you can't know that you can't know. But maybe you can't know. Well, I wanted to also ask, as we're talking a little bit about post-production process, about the music. I love the score. And obviously, you've worked, with, you've worked with Philip Glass and Paul Leonard Morgan before. Um, are the, do the, now how does the, that collaboration work? Do the two of them work together, or are the, each of them contributing individual cues? What's, how, how does their contribution we're all, work? We're all working together. Um, I've known Philip for 30 years. He has contributed to my work. He's contributed in so many ways to my life. I'm a fan. I've been a fan even before I work with him as a composer. His music combines with my images in so many unexpected and wonderful ways. I don't know what I'd do without him. He's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think of your, you and Philip Glass. It's almost like Spielberg and John Williams or something. It's hard to imagine those movies without John Williams, and it's hard to imagine your movies without Philip Glass. Now, at this point, do the two of you, what kinds of conversations do you have, or do you have to even have conversations for him to get working, or is it sort of just a short well, answer? When I did the Thin Blue Long, it was very hard to get him even to agree to do it. When he saw a rough cut, he got inspired by it and said he was not only willing to write the music, he had to write the music. And working with him has been... Philip is very funny and very ironic. I would even go so far as to say there's an element of the perverse. I remember sitting at the piano with him when we were working on part of the score to the Thin Blue Line. I said to him, you know, the trouble with this music, it's just not repetitive enough. And he looked at me. There's a long pause. And finally he said, well, that's a new one. And, uh, but we've worked well together and I think he has, he has some kind of affection for my work and for me. I'm deeply grateful. I saw him, I hadn't seen him in years at the New York Film Festival uh, a couple of months ago. And it's just wonderful to see him. You know, he's, uh, he's an, an amazing cultural force when I, I think of all of the kinds of music, the different genres to which he has contributed, whether it's movies, ballet, 
theater, concert pieces, and on and on and on and on. He's quite amazing. Amazing. And, ama and it's also amazing, as I point out to people, and he points out to people, he, he was a taxi driver and a plumber until he was in his 40s. Um, wow. He once said to me, he said, you know, if you have a choice uh, between a job where you get grease on your pants and a job where you don't get grease on your pants, pick the job where you don't get grease on your pants. And he, he also tells a story about how he was in a taxi driving and the guy in the back seat, he said, you know, there's a really kind of famous composer that has your name. Well, I guess uh, the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is just as a fan of yours, I want to know what are you working on now? What do you have coming up next? Thank you. Um, I've just about finished yet another film, which has been submitted to a number of the early festivals for next year and um, separated. It's a story of the separation of parents and children at the southern border during the Trump administration. And I think it's one of my best films. I think Igor did another amazing job. It's a really, really beautiful film. And then I have another film for Netflix. Um, uh, and I've just finished a script which I really, really want to do about Ed Gein. And it's the love story of how I met my wife, uh, along with how I began my, my first real investigation of Ed Gein in Plainfield, Wisconsin. Fantastic. All right, well, I, I can't wait. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this, Harold. I really appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me. Don't be silly. <laughs> Take care.